This morning, we want to study together this idea that the Word of God transforms human wisdom, and of course, anything that contradicts it must be seen as that which should be rejected. It truly is the filter through which everything should pass before we allow it into our lives, and it guides us into all truth because it comes from God. And because the wisdom that is found in Scripture truly is God's gift to us. And so this wisdom is very valuable. I hope that we understand that and know that today. That God giving us his wisdom in a way that we can understand it in the word of God is so precious and so valuable. I found a story of something that seems to illustrate this well for us today, but back in May of 2012, there was a 32-carat Burmese ruby. Anyone seen a Burmese ruby before? Seen that brilliant color? The ruby and diamond ring. It was part of a collection of Lily Safra, one of the richest women in the world, and it was sold at an auction. The pre-auction estimate for the sale was between three and five million dollars, but the final sale price ended up being 6.7 million. Somebody really wanted that ring. It is believed to be the most expensive ruby that has ever been sold. And we may look at that and be impressed by that. Surely it is impressive as something, of a part of this world that God created that can be so valuable. But as valuable as that ruby and other rubies are, we all understand this morning, I think, that the Bible tells us that wisdom is far better and more valuable than that ruby. No earthly treasure can compare to wisdom because nothing else offers the same protection and benefits and blessings that wisdom does. In fact, the writer in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 11 said this, For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. What has a prominent place in our desires today? What do you really, 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 really want right now? Think about that with me for a moment. What is dominating our desires? If we were to ask you, maybe outside the context of that illustration and outside the context of the sermon, right, uh, what would we have said? What would we have said? Something temporal? Something that floats on the water or sits by the water, perhaps, right? I looked at those things this last week. I'd, I'd love to partake in that myself. What do we really, really want this morning? Is it of temporal value or is it of eternal value? I want to talk to you about wisdom today from a godly perspective, that the Bible contains it, and because of that, it transcends all human wisdom. And I hope that as a result of our time studying today, that we can say as we leave here, if we couldn't say it before we entered, that truly what I desire is to know God's wisdom and to live in that wisdom and to show others what that looks like in my life. 
God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. This definition goes beyond the idea of God knowing all things and specifies that God's decisions about what he will do are always wise decisions. That is, they always will bring about the best results from God's ultimate perspective, and they will bring about those results through the best possible means. Biblical wisdom invites people to a way of life that is in harmony with both the created order and God's redemptive work. In the Old Testament, wisdom is oriented around the fear of the Lord. In the New Testament, wisdom is amplified and reoriented around Christ. A Christian theology of wisdom begins and ends with Jesus. There is a tendency in certain streams of contemporary theology to reorient Christology around some preconceived conception of wisdom. The New Testament, however, moves in the opposite direction. It is wisdom that is reconfigured around Jesus. Authentic Christian wisdom is always constituted in relation to the person and work of Christ. We celebrated his work on the cross, his finished work on the cross this morning. The aim of Old Testament wisdom was a life of virtue lived in the fear of the Lord, in harmony with the order of creation and within the community of God's people. The unresolved tension illustrated by Job and Ecclesiastes was the problem of evil springing from the fall and spawning folly, sin, and death. In the gospel, Christ has defeated sin, Satan, and death with the final victory awaiting his second coming and the consummation. In the interim, Christ has given the redeemed his example his teachings, and his spirit so that believers might live virtuous lives consonant with God's wisdom. In Ephesians, Paul teaches that the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church, even in heavenly places, according to chapter 3 and verse 10. Because of the church's missional role, God's wisdom needs to shape our lives, both in the local fellowship and in our public witness. We are to let the word of Christ indwell us so that we can instruct one another in all wisdom. Colossians 3 and verse 16. Toward outsiders, we are to walk in wisdom and to think deeply about how we live as people who are truly wise. This is not a generic philosophical wisdom that is to transform us, but God's unique and often counterintuitive wisdom that is found in Christ. What does that look like in my life? Practical examples of living shaped by Christological wisdom are embedded in the New Testament. For example, a problem at the church in Corinth was a divisive spirit. This was caused by pride in human wisdom. It is in this context that Paul explicitly calls Christ the wisdom of God. Such wisdom has its foundation in the Son's participation as the Lord of glory in the identity of God. 
Such wisdom is also defined by the son's sacrificial death. The content of this wisdom is the cross-centered gospel, identifying Christ crucified as God's wisdom, sets aside all human wisdom and points us to the way of the cross. The question that we want to talk about today, too, as we look at the aspect that God's word contains God's wisdom is that it should impact our life, and we want to make sure that it is. It's one thing to intellectually assent to everything that I just said to you. It's, it's another thing far different to let it be seen and manifested in our life. You see, these things are supposed to be made known through the church. Remember, in Ephesians, Paul teaches us that the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church. So the question for us today is, is that happening? I had an interesting uh, event happen in my life this last week. I, uh, it was actually a week ago yesterday. So a week ago yesterday, a little longer than a week, and uh, I, I showed up here at the church to lead my leadership development uh, session that Saturday morning. And uh, I always bring those guys donuts. And so I brought those in, set them on the table, and I noticed this little piece of paper, maybe the size of a quarter of a sheet of eight and a half by 11 paper, uh, at the end of the table where I normally sit. So I thought, oh, I'll take a look at that. That's, it, it intrigued me. That's interesting. I'd never seen that before. It looked like it had very intentionally been placed there. And I thought, I wonder if that's for me, because I normally sit there on Saturday morning. I had no idea how it could have gotten there or why. So I go down to the end of the table, and I pick up the piece of paper, and I read it. Here's what it said. Pastor Mark, I saw what you did. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> okay, so have thousands of other people, right? And I was like, what in the world is that? right? What do they mean they saw what I did? So immediately I'm thinking, okay, I inadvertently cut somebody off in traffic and they were offended, right? Uh, or maybe at that stoplight I picked up my cell phone and checked it, right? So they caught me not being hands-free or I don't know. I was like, wow, that made me really think like, what did I do, right? What did I do? So it was interesting. We went through the leadership development session. I didn't say anything about it because I didn't suspect that anyone in that session was the one who left the note. But as it turns out, I went out to my truck to leave and I had a couple things to do uh, so that I could be hands-free on the way home. So I'm handling some texts and some phone calls that came during the leadership session. And one of the guys walks up to the truck with this grin on his face. And he goes, hey, pastor, did you get my note? <laughs> and I said, yeah. I said, what did you see me do? He said, oh, nothing. I was just wanting to keep you honest. So, <laughs> But you know what? The truth of the matter is people do see who we are and what we do, how we respond to life. And every one of us could be the recipient of that note. And there probably was something that someone saw and witnessed us doing or saying that uh, may not be manifesting the wisdom of God, right? And it happens to all of us because we're all human. We're all still, still struggling with the residue of our depravity. 
and we're going to do stupid things. We're all capable of doing stupid things. But we need to think about it, don't we? Don't we really need to think about God's wisdom manifested in us as part of the church and on display as trophies of his grace to a world that desperately needs his grace? And I want us to think about the word of God and the role that it should play in that process because it contains his wisdom. And we can take it and apply it and we can truly be very bright lights in this very dark world if we're willing to let his wisdom be manifested in and through us. So let's talk about wisdom today as it relates to God and to us. First of all, God is perfect in his knowledge and his wisdom. Uh, He is completely perfect in this, and that's why we can trust him. You see, you look at God that he truly is all-wise. He truly knows everything. He's omniscient. But his wisdom, as we were reminded earlier, transcends the fact that he knows everything. That's only part of it. Not only does he know everything, but, but he only and always does what is best through the best possible means. That's our great God. And because of his other perfections, because of who he really is, we can trust his wisdom implicitly. We can take what he says and obey it without any question. We don't even have to pray about it. We just need to be obedient. Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Our Lord is great, vast in power. His understanding is infinite. How many of you had children who thought you knew everything? Anybody have? Who who didn't think they could get away with anything, right? Because mom and dad knew everything. My wife used to pray, I think, every day that if our kids did something they shouldn't do, that they would get caught. That's a great prayer, let me tell you, because God answers that prayer. God answers that prayer. In fact, they'll testify to that today. I think one of them says they didn't get away with anything. I don't know if I believe that. Chapter 139, verses 1 through 4. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways before a word is on my tongue. You know all about it, Lord. Why wouldn't we trust him? Why wouldn't we trust him enough to take him at his word and allow the wisdom that's found in it to be manifested in our lives through submission and obedience to a world that so desperately needs it? Why would we ever fall short of that goal? Why does our selfishness, our pride, our fear, our anxiety, maybe our guilt and our shame keep us from allowing the manifestation of God's wisdom in our life. I was talking to somebody recently who felt shame and guilt because they were rejoicing in their identity in Christ. And the reason they felt this way was because recently it had been shown that they weren't perfect, right? They had made a bad decision that resulted in sin. And they said to me, I feel guilty and shameful for rejoicing in my identity in Christ because I don't think I deserve to be rejoicing in my identity in Christ. And they had other people in their life who were, who were really affecting their outlook and affecting uh, the way they were living because 
they weren't living up to their expectations. I said, wait a minute. If you wait until you're worthy or until you deserve rejoicing in the identity that you have in Christ, regardless of your sin, then you will never rejoice because you're never going to get there in this life. It is okay to rejoice in your identity in Christ because he loves you and because God's grace has been provided for you and it truly is greater than any and all sin that could ever find its way into your life. And it's okay to rejoice in that even though you know you're guilty and you have sinned. That's not a flippant attitude about sin. We still need to be cleansed and we still need to confess our sin and be reconciled to God. But many of us gathered around this table today and we were reminded of how costly our sin is. And we might have been tempted not to celebrate. We might have been tempted to act like we were coming to a funeral. But I'm telling you, Christ is alive. And it's okay for us to rejoice in the newness of life that we have in him. And it's okay to come to this table and rejoice even though it reminds us of something that was horrific because Jesus gave his life for our sins. But we don't have to live in guilt and shame because our sin was so costly. We have victory over that sin. And one day we're going to find ourselves in the resurrection and we're going to be glorified in heaven. And we are not going to sit around like we've just eaten a dill pickle in heaven. I'm telling you right now, that's not what heaven's going to be. Okay? So that's not what it should be here either. We should rejoice in this truth. It should be cause for celebration. And you know what? The world needs to see that. I, I go back to that because the wisdom of God truly is manifest through the church. And they need to see this. They need to know that we are secure and rejoicing in our identity in Christ even when we mess up. Because they mess up too. And they need to know that there's hope and peace and comfort and grace. And the only place that they're really going to see that as they should is the product of the church as it lets it be real in their own lives. Consider that with me and embrace that as well. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard, that Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth? He never grows faint or weary, and there is no limit to his understanding. Wisdom among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. Truly, God can do that. All of God's acts are done in perfect wisdom, first for his own glory, and then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest time. And all his acts are as pure as they are wise. Why? Because he truly is perfect. Listen, as one writer put it this way, not only could God's acts not be done better, but a better way to do them could not be imagined. That's the wisdom that God has. And he has given us that wisdom in his word. I hope that we'll trust him and I hope that we'll let this wisdom dominate us and I hope that we'll be the bright light to the dark world. They will see it manifested through the church. And that's where we go next. God's wisdom is meant to be manifested in and through his people. It's not just for our learning. 
It's not just to feed our intellect, although it is fun to contemplate our majestic God, our infinite God. It is, it is a blast to let those things just kind of rattle around in our minds, as his greatness and his majesty, just the fact that he truly is full of all wisdom and, and truly is perfect in that, and that nothing that he ever does because he's perfect in his wisdom could ever be done better. That is amazing stuff to think about. But what does it mean to us? And how should it affect us? Let me talk to you briefly about this. Wise living, of course, starts with fearing God. We must allow his perfections to bring us to a point where we live in consistent and total awe of him. Is that true? What awes us today? I'll never forget a man who became a dear friend of mine used to have as his license plate, awed by one. And so I talked to him one day and I said, hey, Don, uh, who is that one? And for him, it was his wife. That was his way of expressing his loyalty to his wife. And I thought, wow, there is a deep spiritual application here. That person should be God in our lives, awed by one. He's the only one that deserves that place. Why? Because of who he is. And we should live in fear, not the fear that we think of from a human perspective, but in awe and adoration of him. And that's where this all begins, doesn't it? Allow yourself to be overwhelmingly impressed with God. That's the safest place to live. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord, the, the idea of being overwhelmingly impressed with God is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Are we living there today? You know, wise living grows by receiving God's word. We know this, don't we? Psalm chapter 19 and verse 7. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. You see, knowing the Bible never changed anyone. It is applying what you know of the Bible that brings life change. Receive God's word. That doesn't mean just know what it says. That means receive it, allow it to transform you, and as you have been inexperienced, you will become wise. Your life will be renewed. Finally, here under this point, we'll see that wise living requires that we ask for it. When's the last time we ask God for wisdom and really, really ask God for wisdom? Right? We ask so many other people, don't we? I mean, I, I could point you to uh, situations this last week where, where I needed something and I needed it quickly and I allowed myself to get in a rush and so I called somebody that I trusted. I didn't even pray about it. Didn't even pray about it. Then this morning I'm kind of looking at my notes to prepare as I'm having my second cup of coffee. I never do that while I'm having my first cup of coffee because I never know what's going to happen. But that second cup of coffee, right? I'm like, wait a minute. 
I can't just call people and ask them for wisdom and counsel and advice. I, I didn't even pray about that situation. Didn't even ask God for his wisdom. It was a rebuke to me. James chapter 1. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. If you want wisdom, you have to ask for it. Don't forget this. You have not because you ask not. Don't forget that simple teaching in Scripture. Ask for wisdom. It's okay to consult others as they understand and know true wisdom as well. There's safety in the multitude of counselors and advisors, but not even they can be a good substitute for God. Finally, and we'll finish with this thought, God's wisdom as found in his word will transform believers' lives into several things. I'll go through this list efficiently, but I want you to consider each one. James chapter 3, beginning of verse 13, says, Who is wise and has understanding among you? That one, he should show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, even demonic. For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every kind of evil. But the wisdom from above, as opposed to that, is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. What do, what do we learn here? That a person who is pursuing the wisdom of God and is being transformed, what does that look like? First of all, it looks like humility. Wise people don't constantly brag, boast, or display a prideful attitude. They are humble. Why is that? Because they never forget where what they have comes from. And they never forget where they came from in the process. That's a wise person. There are good deeds that are involved in this as well. Wise people are going to live an upright and moral life. They understand the consequences of evil and accept what God teaches about morality. And they don't argue with it or try to find a way to find an exception to it. They submit themselves wisely to the words of God, and they live their lives accordingly. Wise people, according to this passage, are also gentle people. They treat others with care and respect. They might be one who asks the question, and I would ask you to write this down and ask someone not related to you that you trust this question. What is it like to be on the other side of me? Are you brave enough to ask that question? What is it like to be on the other side of me? A wise person wants to know the answer to that, even if it hurts, ask it and respond accordingly to the answer that you get. Wise people are considerate. They put the needs of others ahead of themselves whenever possible. Some of you did that this morning in your giving in the benevolent offering. 
you decided to take of some of your wealth and invest it in someone, probably you'll never know who they are. You'll never know their identity. You'll never know what the need was, but you know that it's wise to obey God in this, that those who have needs are not to be turned away. We're not to just pray with them and send them on their way, but we are to give as God has made it able or made it possible for us to give. As it is within the power of our hand, we should be giving and meeting those needs. The scripture is clear. Wise people know that and they obey that. Wise people, according to this passage, are also lovers of peace. People who are wise, listen, do not foster division. Think about it. Right now, your role in this faith community, is it one of peace or is it one of division? Think about it. Don't get caught in this trap of causing division. I'm telling you, there is no faster way to put yourself in the place of the chastening hand of an almighty God than to mess with his church. I'm not saying that as something that, that I desire or that, that I do, but that is how God loves his church. Do you really want to mess with something that Jesus died for? You want to mess with that by being divisive? I would call you to wisdom in your life. If you're involved in division, if you're involved in gossip and slander in the body, and you're causing the erosion of its, of its structure because of your division, don't do that. Work to end strife and turmoil. Don't participate in it. Don't throw fuel on the flames of divisiveness. If you do, I believe God will chasten you severely because he loves his church. Next of all, merciful. People who are wise are merciful. Wise people demonstrate compassion, forgiveness, and kindness to others. We also learn here that they are sincere. Wise people are genuine, real, and honest, not deceptive or hypocritical or false. And finally, from this passage in James, we learn that wise people are impartial. They're fair and just. They do not show partiality to others for their own benefit. You see, if we will allow the wisdom of God to captivate our hearts and dominate our lives, we are building on a strong foundation that will last. It will last as far as our church is concerned, and it will pay dividends to the generations in our faith community but it will also pay dividends to the generations in our, in our families. Let me close with this. The tallest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, rises more than 2,700 feet. That's over half a mile tall. It has 160 floors and is twice as tall as the Empire State Building in New York City. It is home to the world's fastest elevator. How many of you like fast elevators? Doesn't that make you nervous? Oh, man. Some of you like them, but I'm telling you, that thing takes off. Woo. How fast do you think this one goes? 40 miles an hour. Think of that. That's like an amusement park in a building, huh? This building also hosts the world's highest outdoor observation deck. It's on the 124th floor and the world's highest swimming pool, which is on the 76th floor. 
The secret to the stability of this massive building is found underground. Before construction began to rise up, workers spent a year digging and pouring the massive foundation that supports the building. The foundation contains some 58,900 cubic yards of concrete, weighing more than 110,000 tons. The building is safe because the foundation is solid. Godly and righteous living is important as a matter of obedience. But there are also many wonderful benefits that follow as a result. When we live according to God's principles of wisdom, we receive his blessing, but we also establish a firm foundation for our lives and our families. And that's what I'm calling you to today. Build that foundation and then build on that foundation by allowing God's wisdom as found in his word to dominate your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to study Help it to be more than just something that we do because we're supposed to. Help it to truly affect us and impact us. And may we have an impact on others as a result. We thank you that greater foundation can no man lay than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. We want to build on that foundation of infinite wisdom. As we worship now, and sing of Jesus who is our rock and who is our redeemer. May we be motivated to change anything that doesn't line up with his infinite wisdom. And may we change anything that hinders us showing his glory to the nations. Give us the courage that we need to change. In the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.